The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode contains discussion of suicide. Please listen with caution. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please call or text the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 9888, 24 hours a day. Tanya's case was reopened again in late 2008. Her sister Renee talked extensively to ABC3 for a piece run by the network on the 24th anniversary. She said, quote, We were real close. She was the only sibling I had. They say she left Daryl's with somebody. She went there with my cousin and they ended up leaving separately and... She just trusted anybody, you know? It just seems like it was a senseless crime that needs to be closed, if nothing else, for the family. It's hard to live without that. End quote. In connection with the reinvestigation, investigators, particularly lead detective Captain Paul Kelly, made the rounds of the people in the case file and re-interviewed them. They learned from Vanita that, during the brief time Tanya had stayed with her just before she was killed, she had gone home one night with a stranger she met in a bar. Vanita said that Tanya was someone who would have been very likely to accept a ride from a stranger without question. As Renee said in the piece I just quoted, Tanya was trusting and didn't think anyone she met could be dangerous. A whole new round of testing was conducted in 2009. The following items were submitted to the FDLE lab. The blue towel and cuttings from the blue towel, the sexual assault kit, Tanya's fingernail scrapings, Tanya's dress and pantyhose, including a hair removed from the waist area and a swabbing from inside the waist area of the hose. The results came back that both the towel and the dress gave chemical indications for the presence of blood. Only the towel, not the dress, demonstrated the presence of spermatozoa. Three hairs were identified on the pantyhose, but only one was suitable for STR DNA analysis. The results showed that a male DNA profile obtained from sperm fraction on the towel cutting matched the male DNA profile from the vaginal swab sperm fraction. Analysis of the fingernail scrapings detected no foreign DNA. In connection with the reinvestigation, Detective Kelly 
re-interviewed Jeff B. on January 16, 2009. Jeff was the Daryl's employee with the six pets whose home had been searched pursuant to a search warrant. Jeff denied having committed the murder of Tanya and said he didn't know who did, but he heard rumors in the neighborhood that a guy in the neighborhood had done it. And this rumor was interesting to the investigators because the guy who was the subject of the rumor was from a family that owned a local pet grooming business. This, of course, could explain all the animal hairs on Tanya, her clothes, and the blue towel. This pet grooving investigative avenue led investigators to bark up the wrong tree for quite some time. Did you see what I did there? I'm going to leave it there because this tip really led nowhere, but you can understand why investigators pursued it. Jeff voluntarily submitted to a buckle swab on January 16, 2009. The FDLE reported on February 10th that it was not a match to the crime scene DNA. In October of the same year, Robert P. was also ruled out after giving a voluntary DNA sample. On July 1, 2015, the First Judicial Circuit's Assistant State's Attorney John Molshan and Captain Paul Kelly, the PPDCID, sent a letter to the Familial Search Review Committee at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement requesting that a familial search be conducted of the state's DNA database. Florida is one of just 13 states that expressly permits the use of familial DNA searching. As listeners know, these searches of the state-level DNA databases are targeted searches designed to reveal the names of any persons in the database who are close relatives of the unknown perpetrator by measuring similarities in their genetic profiles. This is STR comparison-based, not the SNPs that are used in forensic genealogy. As is typical, the familial search request letters stated that every lead had been exhausted and the case had been thoroughly investigated, but had stalled due to lack of leads. The request was approved and another cutting from the blue towel was analyzed for DNA. The FDLE lab report dated April 21, 2015, states that the lab was able to obtain a complete male DNA profile from the sperm fraction from the cutting. The profile was consistent with those previously obtained from the towel and the vaginal swabs. The FDLE had some results to report on August 24th of 2015. The FDLE report says, quote, The DNA profile from the cuttings of the blue towel was searched using a program designed to identify individuals in the state of Florida qualifying offender DNA database that could be potential first-order relatives to the contributor of the DNA profile. Qualified male candidates were then screened using YSTR DNA profiles. A possible match occurred with a qualifying male offender sample, end quote. Notes clarified that first-order relatives are parent, offspring, and full sibling. The report then named Daniel C. Franklin, Jr., date of birth I'm not giving, and concluded, quote, If a subject is developed, it is requested that buckle swabs be submitted for DNA analysis, end quote. Now, I want to state here that Franklin is not the real last name that was investigated pursuant to the familial search results. It was another common F surname but I'm using the pseudonym Franklin to preserve that family's privacy because they were investigated extensively. Caveats in the familial DNA search report from the state CODIS administrator specified that, quote, this search result only indicates the possibility of a biological relationship. It does not confirm 
that the named individual is biologically related to the source of the forensic unknown profile. What this means is that there could be instances where the individuals share genetic markers, but could be only very tangentially related or not related at all. For this reason, the report states the results are to be treated as nothing more than a lead. But a lead it was. The investigators went down the Daniel C. Franklin rabbit hole. He had been arrested for cocaine trafficking in 2007. A list was prepared of his male relatives. Among his grandfather, father, uncle, sons, cousins, and nephews, there were 10 Franklin men to investigate. Pensacola PD crime scene supervisor Nicole Heinzelman had taken on the McKinley case in 2001. She started tracking down all the Franklin relatives and trying to get DNA that could lead to Tanya's killer. This was an arduous, time-consuming, and exhaustive process. Heinzelman traveled all over interviewing subjects and asking for DNA swabs. Needless to say, some of them were leery. Several family members had records. One had multiple arrests for assault. Another admitted he should be in CODIS because he went to prison for 18 months for aggravated battery with a firearm. Nevertheless, he allowed them to take a DNA sample anyway. Patriarch Emmett Franklin was deceased, but his daughter shipped the detectives her father's cracked glass eye, which, believe it or not, yielded a DNA sample. Yuck. I can talk about semen all day long, but the thought of this glass eye taken from Emmett's eye socket is just gross. Anyway, Several other Franklin men were also dead, and their family members sent in items of their clothing, including a hunting hat with antlers, a jean jacket, and so on, for testing. I'm reading from Henselman's report here, quote, I later spoke with FDLE analyst Trevor Seifert about the results of the testing and received the lab report dated October 20th, 2015, which stated that the comparisons to the DNA left at the crime scene were negative. The comparison was made to the buckle swabs of Daniel C. Franklin Sr., D.C. Franklin, L.L. Franklin, and B.J. Franklin with negative results. The DNA extracts from items belonging to Emmett, Lewis Franklin, and Johnny Franklin were negative. The remaining male relative to the Franklins, D.W., who I'm not naming, could not be a match due to the markers. It was a bust. There was another seemingly promising lead in 2016, which took investigator Heinzelman down a dead-end road. She reported, quote, On January 14th of 2016, I spoke with Detective Robin Hyatt from Prince William County Police CID Special Victims Unit concerning a G.R. Dover. She stated that her agency had contacted the Pensacola PD in the past about Mr. Dover, but I could find no record of that contact. I received a copy of a transcribed interview with A. Dover, taken on June 24, 1987, A. was G. R. Dover's wife. She had been interviewed by the FBI in June 1987 in connection with a murder investigation. A realtor named Jacqueline Lard had been abducted and murdered in Stafford County, Virginia. The FBI was involved because Jacqueline's husband, Ron, was a DEA agent who was out of the country at the time of her death there was some thinking that her murder might have been connected to his work. I'm not sure how A. Dover came into it, but the FBI was very interested in her young husband, G.R. Dover, as a potential suspect. In her interview with FBI Special Agent Robert Purcell, quote, 
A. Dover gave information concerning G.R. Dover's actions and that he may have been involved in the death of a female in Pensacola, Florida. End quote. G.R. Dover was a white male, 20 years old in 1985, with brown hair who worked menial jobs, including restaurants. He had separated from his wife, A., and her parents called the police when they learned of the abusive behavior he had subjected their daughter to. A Prince William County police report says, quote, Apparently, A. told her parents about the weird sex acts her husband was performing on her. The acts consisted of anal sodomy, bondage, placing a bag over her face, and singing sexually connotative jingles about, it doesn't matter what color they are because it's all pink on the inside. I swear, the stuff that I read in these police files. Anyway, G.R. Dover had some prior arrests, including for a peeping Tom incident. He had a history of violence, and some members of his family were afraid of him. He had threatened to kill his young wife on a number of occasions, usually when drunk. A. said he preferred violent sex in which he inflicted pain on her, and he had choked her in fits of rage on several occasions. Sometimes he insisted on tying her up before sex, and she said his adoptive mother had played with his genitals in front of her, and she was pretty sure they were having sex. Good Lord, why on earth does all this matter? Well, A. told the feds that G.R., her husband, worked for Daryl's Restaurant in Pensacola as a dishwasher back in January 1985. Not only that, he had walked home from work on the night of Tanya McKinley's death, which was unusual. A. also said he quit his job and never went back to work at Daryl's after that night. He kept this quitting of his job a secret from his wife, A., for weeks after the incident, leaving every evening as if going to his shift. And this was really interesting. Investigator Henselman's notes say, quote, While checking the file, I noticed that during the interview of William, this is a, a Daryl's employee, he said George the busboy was mentioned as being present in the after-hours party at Daryl's on the night of the murder, end quote. GRW's stepfather lived in Pensacola. Further, he had been arrested there in December 1984 for disorderly conduct and public intoxication. A was right that he was living in the area at the time of Tanya's murder and was possibly at the bar that night. I have to tell you that I have no idea how G.R. Dover was ruled out. He was a very good lead given all that the investigators learned about his tendencies and his connection to Daryl's. Since he was looked at in 2016, I can only assume he was ruled out when the DNA didn't match. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. By early 2019, Pensacola investigators decided to take things up a notch. Nicole Henselman proposed that they contract with Parabon Nanolabs to conduct a phenotype analysis of their suspect. Parabon's snapshot report dated February 2, 2019, stated that the suspect's genetic profile showed that he was 88.7% descended from Northern Europe. The other 10% plus was from Southern Europe. His ancestors were generally concentrated in a small area of Northern Europe. 
His phenotype predictions were that he had fair skin, green or hazel eyes, and light brown hair. Unfortunately, an assessment of whether forensic genealogy would be successful showed no promising matches in GEDmatch, defined as greater than 300 centimorgans, and just three potentially helpful matches, defined as between 70 and 300 centimorgans. This was estimated to be a level four of five on the forensic genealogy success scale, with one being the best and five being pretty much impossible. Well, they did it. I emailed with Lori Napolitano, who, as the chief of the Orlando Regional Crime Lab with the FDLE, created a statewide genetic genealogy investigations team for that agency. She's now retired, but she told me that this was quite a case. It took her and her team, assisted by Parabon's initial findings, two years to get results. Interestingly, she told me that while her team did not concentrate at all on the results of the familial search, quote, we did find a possible connection between the Wells line and the Franklin line, but it was very far back, like seven generations maybe, and likely involved a misattributed father, but it is unproven, end quote. Parabon's genealogist told me the same. The Franklins were definitely related to the suspect, the Wells family, somehow. Anyway, they didn't need to focus on the familial stuff. They had forensic genealogy at their fingertips. Parabon did the initial work on the case with the genealogist successfully identifying four separate genetic networks the killer belonged to. But finding where the genetic networks intersected was the challenge. The top two matches networks included ancestral families rooted in northern Florida and southern Georgia, with extensive lineage on record. But the genealogists had a heck of a time connecting them. Eventually, the FDLE team focused instead on the other two networks, numbers three and four, with lesser matches, but which had individual members located in Pensacola. There, Lori and her team were able to locate a connection between the two networks, aided by the new availability of the FTDNA database matches. The connection ended up being the suspect's maternal grandparents. On the paternal side, the genealogists suspect at least one, possibly more, incidents of misattributed parentage, making things really complicated and explaining why genetic networks 1 and 2 were not interconnecting. To this day, they still do not know how the suspect is connected to the top two genetic networks or the Franklin family. Another quote from Lori, talking about working from the starting point of third or fourth cousins, I remember we had a huge family tree and the detective did some target testing with a couple of people, but nobody closer than maybe a second cousin. Tough case because we could never connect the closest matches, but no big surprises either. Just one branch with distant matches and a huge family. We were just bringing one part of the genealogy down to more recent living people and found a marriage with a surname from one of our other genetic networks, tying the two networks together. Working that marriage down, using time and place, we got to one of Wells's parents and then Wells as an only son and passed him off as a lead. Luckily, a very dedicated detective who contacted people got family tree info, etc. Yes, you heard it. Through the descendancy work, they landed on a single name, a man with four sisters and no brothers. In March 2020, Daniel Leonard Wells was identified as a possible suspect in this case. He was white, with brown hair and blue eyes. He had a criminal record. And he lived guess where when Tanya was killed? Pensacola, Florida. 
Pensacola investigators determined from motor vehicle records that Daniel Wells was living at 5206 Cerny Road in Pensacola. A round-the-clock surveillance detail was put together for the week of March 2, 2020. It consisted of personnel from Pensacola Police Department's Criminal Investigations Division and the FDLE. They needed to get his DNA. They tailed him for two days. On March 4th, FDLE agents Stephanie Cassidy and Andrew Smith followed Daniel Wells as he left work in his red Chevy pickup. At 9.30 a.m., he drove north from his workplace at 101 South Pace Boulevard toward his home on Cerny Road. As he approached the intersection of Pace and Mallory at 9.40 a.m., he threw a cigarette butt out the driver's side window. I'm so thankful that all these suspects smoke. After he went through the light, Sergeant Dan Harnett stopped traffic, scooped up the butt and bagged it, and sent it off to the FDLE lab for analysis. This is from the probable cause affidavit and FDLE lab report dated March 12th. Quote, the analysis revealed the DNA extracted from the cigarette butt matched the DNA from the semen found on McKinley's vaginal swab and found on the towel left by her body. The DNA profile is greater than 700 billion times more likely to occur if the sample originated from Daniel Wells than from an unrelated individual. Additional investigation revealed Wells listed an address on Elmcrest Drive on a traffic ticket in March 1985. Elmcrest Drive is less than a mile from where McKinley was murdered, end quote. So Daniel Wells' DNA matched. He was living right near the crime scene, and further, they learned that he was working in the kitchen at Chan's Saloon at the University Mall, right near Daryl's. The arrest warrant affidavit makes clear that the evidence showed that Wells killed Tanya and didn't just have sex with her. Quote, The numerous injuries on McKinley's body, coupled with the partial removal of her pantyhose and evidence of semen in her vagina and on the towel, indicate McKinley was sexually battered just prior to or after her death. End quote. And of course, the towel being found right near her body showed that not only was Wells the one who had raped Tanya, but he had been at the scene where she was dumped. I watched the Pensacola police dash and body cam videos of Daniel Wells' arrest on March 18, 2020. A whole slew of PPD officers, Captain Charles Mallett, along with Detectives Osley, Earhart, Savage, and Baker, were watching Wells as he got into his truck. They radioed ahead to a waiting patrol car whose job it was to pull Wells over on some trumped-up traffic violation. The patrol officers knew exactly when he was coming along, thanks to communication from the surveillance team, and they pulled out behind him on West Navy Boulevard. Seeing the squad car with the lights on, Wells pulled over in front of the Mercedes-Benz dealer. A female officer approached Wells in his pickup truck and asked for his license. He's very friendly and congenial. She asks him to step out of the truck because of the virus. It was during COVID. And he does so. 57-year-old Wells is huge. He's listed as 6'6", 200 pounds, standing next to the diminutive officer. The officer pretends to run his license. Wells is standing there in cargo shorts and a t-shirt. And then two detectives appear and tell Wells that they'd like to talk to him down at the station. He says, why? And they say, we just need to talk to you down at the station. Wells looks frustrated and a little irritated. They ask if he would like the keys to his truck, and he says, yeah, I want my keys. And then they take his wallet and put him in the squad car. He expresses concern that his truck is locked up and parked somewhere safe. 
I have to wonder how long it takes these guys to realize they've got a lot bigger problems than whether their pickup truck might get stolen. Wells does not talk in the car. The ride is silent but for the police radio chirping about unrelated matters. He isn't cuffed or anything, but another officer sits in the back with him, and he was patted down beforehand. He walks into the station accompanied by the two officers. They offer him water and leave him in an interview room. Sergeant Dan Harnett later told me that Wells at no time seemed surprised by this development. His attitude was more one of resignation. Footage in the interview room shows Wells sitting patiently, sighing a little bit, hands crossed on his thigh. He doesn't appear nervous, isn't pacing or shaking or anything like that. They let him sit there with a pair of cuffs and a Bible on the table. He touches neither. Finally, at about the 14-minute mark, the detectives come in. They are Sergeant Dan Harnett and Captain Chuck Mallett. They say, you probably have a hundred questions. He says, I'm, and he makes a gesture like clueless. Okay to call you Dan? Yes. Wells sits back with his arms crossed, with his hands tightly in his armpits, his chair kind of backed into a corner. Although Sergeant Harnett sits almost uncomfortably close to him, they butter him up with a lot of chit-chat. They start asking about where he lives, what he does, and so on. He's living at 5206 Cerny Road. His cell phone, which they've taken, is a Kansas area code. He lived there for 20 years, he explains. He's been a woodworker since the mid-80s and worked at Woodcraft Manufacturing for two years. He did lots of custom woodwork for Disney, he says. Wells was born on August 12, 1962, in Florida. His parents were Father Rodney Bernard Wells, Jr., a pharmacist, and mother Marilyn Meyer Wells. He had four sisters and no brothers. According to Wells, his mother left when he was 10 or 11, and he stayed with his dad. He grew up in Milton and graduated from MHS in 1981, the same high school Tanya McKinley attended, a year ahead of Wells. He would have been just about 23 years old at the time of her murder. Police learned that in his early 20s, Wells moved to Pensacola. Then he moved to Kansas City, Missouri in the latter half of the 80s. He got married and divorced there twice. The first marriage was from 1993 to 98, and the second was from 2004 to 2009. After the second divorce, he decided to return to Pensacola to be near family, although his son, whose name starts with the letter M, resided in Arizona. So the investigators are asking him all these invasive questions about his history, and he never once asked them, what is this about? And by the way, this guy seems as normal as normal can be. You would not look at him twice other than his height. Detectives tell him that they now have to read him his rights. He waves them, signing a form saying so. I'm always surprised that these guys don't take the cops up on their offer to suspend the interview while they talk to a lawyer, but maybe that's just because I am a lawyer. The detectives launch right back in. Back in the mid-80s, did you know a girl named Tanya McKinley? He sits back, no. Tanya Etheridge? No, the only Tanya I knew was Tanya Lynn from school. The name doesn't ring a bell. He looks at the photos the investigators have placed on the table in front of him. They're photos of Tanya. I don't know her at all. He's not sweating, no nervous movements, no shaking voice, nothing. They ask where he was living in January 1985. He tells them 12th and Cervantes. They ask if he had any pets, and he says no. This is a bit of a disappointment. If they could show that he had a pet consistent with the pet hair found all over Tanya, it would really help make their case. They start asking him if he ever got in trouble with the law. 
He tells them he was arrested in 1985 in Collier County after making an illegal left turn for driving with a suspended license. That's the only time he got in trouble, he said. This is important because it was during this arrest that he filled out a form saying he was living at 4237 Elmcrest in Pensacola, less than a mile from where Tanya was dumped. But this is not where he now told the investigators he was living at the time. They tell him they have his own reporting that he lived on Elmcrest. Why would you lie, they ask. He doesn't remember that, he says. The detectives set a bit of a trap for Wells when they ask him about his record. They know exactly what he's done, and they want to see if he's honest about it. And he isn't. Any issues with the Escambia County Sheriff's Office? No, don't think so. He basically says, oh, I got pulled over once, blah, blah. No, never arrested for battery. Nope, never arrested for solicitation. These are lies. His record is pretty extensive, and I'll get into that later. But for now, the cops say, look, we've investigated you. We know all about you and what you've done. It's in your best interest not to lie to us. They ask him where he was on New Year's Eve, 1984. He's noncommittal. He can't really remember. They say, did you go to a bar? He says he didn't really go to bars. They decide to go for it. Captain Mallet interrupts him with a photo of Tanya and says, this girl looks like she'd gone out. Wells says, looking at the picture, I don't know her, never had contact with her. Captain Mallet knows when to start putting the screws on. He says, you got any idea what we're talking about yet? Wells says, no, I don't. The captain says, let's cut to the chase. That young lady on January 1, 1985, was found dead on the side of a road. Wells looks at him like, and? And the captain says, I have evidence that you were there. Nope, Wells says. I have physical evidence that you're there. I'm not doing all this on a guess. Wells says, I don't know her. You were there. I wasn't there. You watch crime shows? No. Do you know about DNA? Yes. I can prove one in 700 billion chances you were there. Your DNA is at the site on this person. There is no other explanation. It's not anyone else's. Harnett chimes in. I get this is probably freaking you out a little bit. You can choose to give us the story of how it happened. If you don't, it starts to look pretty bad while you're not explaining it. Well, says, I've never heard anyone in my life. I mean, I've had one night stands. With her, they say? No, I don't know her. I don't know the name. We already know that you're responsible. They try to coax him to talk. They say it's totally normal to be defensive about it. It's shocking after 35 years to have this come back up. Mallet says, I don't like playing games. I've been doing this way too long. Saying that you weren't there doesn't work. I can't tell you what to say. The evidence we have at the scene paints a very ugly picture. It was not an accident. Wells looks like a child pretending he didn't do something. It just blows me away. I'm really confused. I just don't understand. Captain Mallet tells Wells they've been following him. They grabbed a cigarette butt he threw out the window. They tell him exactly what intersection it happened at and that DNA was a match. This doesn't faze him. He indicates he's stumped. Maybe he had sex with somebody. They remind him of one of the incidents on his record where a woman reported him for a lewd sex act. They say it's not a leap from that to this. Wells says, I've never forced sex with anyone. They ask him to explain the DNA and he says, I don't remember her, but maybe I had sex with her. He admits he remembers hearing about the murder on the news. The detectives then escalate things in a very calculated way. They want to appeal to Welsh's conscience. They tell him if he doesn't explain how his DNA got there, his son, M, will know he did it and didn't have any plausible explanation. Sergeant Harnett told me that this was what cracked Wells open. He starts waffling. 
he seems to be weighing what to tell them. And it very quickly becomes apparent that he actually remembers it all. He starts by saying he went out with some friends to the beach that night, but he won't admit to meeting Tanya yet. They press and tell him they don't think this was the norm. They think something happened. And he can tell the story, or others will, and it won't be flattering. The guy who did this is a monster. He says, I'm not a monster. I was with her, he finally says, very quietly, nearly two hours into the interview. He says he met her at a bar near the university mall. He can't remember which one, but that's where Daryl's was located. Her friends had left her, and she wanted a ride home. And they went to his house and had a few drinks, and it escalated from there. We got in an argument or something. Not about sex. She was willing. We had consensual sex, but then I hit her on the head and knocked her out. It was a traumatic blow. She coughed and spat. I knew it was bad. I'd killed her. He admitted he dumped her on the roadside, quote, like a bag of trash. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Okay, so it was all out there. He did it. The detectives spent the next nearly two hours getting every little detail they could out of Daniel Wells. Wells was crashing at the house of a buddy at that time. This was a friend named John, whose home was on Elmcrest, just like Wells had told the police on March 31, 1985, when he got a traffic ticket. On New Year's Eve 1984, he went to a bar and saw a bunch of people he knew there. He also met Tanya, and they put together that they both went to Milton High School, just a year apart. She was looking for a ride home, but she agreed to go over to the house with him. His buddy wasn't home. At the house, they did some lines of coke and had some drinks. They had consensual sex. Remember, this is all according to Wells. Tanya is not here to tell her side of the story, thanks to him. Two of Wells's buddies, Bobby and Ralph, came over for drinks for maybe 45 minutes, and Tanya was ready to go home. The two guys offered to drive Tanya home, but she didn't want to get a ride from them since she didn't know them. She wanted Wells to take her home. At this point, Wells says he wanted more sex, but Tanya didn't. They were in the kitchen, and he wanted sex, and she wanted to leave. It was late. He says she slapped him, and she turned her back, and he hit her whack on the back of the head with the flat surface of a heavy wooden cutting board. He downplayed it, saying, We had a little confrontation, and I snapped. She turned away. It was reactive. He says Tanya went down and, as we know from the autopsy, had a pretty serious head wound that was bleeding. What's creepy is that while he's telling this part of the story, Wells demonstrates how he whacked her, hands on either side of the board, and brought it down hard on her head. He clearly remembered every little detail of this event. This next part he was really reluctant to relay. He deliberately tries to pretend that he doesn't really recall the order of events. But it emerged that after he hit her on the head, he carried her into the bedroom and strangled her. She was making noises after he hit her. He knew she was still alive but was dying, so he strangled her to end it. He said she was on her side and he was on top of her. Remember, the left side of her throat had more injury than the right. How did you eventually kill her? I think I strangled her. How? With my hands. 
Once he hit her, he said he just wanted it to be over with. And here's the part that shows exactly how depraved this guy was. After Tanya was dead, he raped her. The detectives asked if he penetrated her. Yes, I think I did insert my penis after I strangled her. It was kind of unsuccessful, and he couldn't get her to respond, he says. They ask about the anal sex that showed up at the autopsy. He said he doesn't recall that. The detectives tell Wells that Tanya had some serious injuries not explained by this story. They say there are some indications it was not your hands. Remember, the autopsy report indicated a ligature was used. Maybe I used a belt or something, he said. A black belt was found near Tanya's body, but it's unknown whether that was the belt Wells was referring to. Yes, he admitted he could have had a belt there in the bedroom. Remember that the autopsy determined that Tanya sustained some scratches on her legs, nail marks that looked like someone was forcibly trying to pull her pantyhose down while she fought. Sergeant Harnett did not believe Wells' story about consensual sex at all. Tanya was found with nail scratches on her legs and her tights pulled partially off. That does not indicate consensual behavior. What did you do with the blood, they asked. Cleaned it up. Did you use a towel? He can't recall what he used. They tell him a towel was found with Tanya's body and it had his DNA on it. He has no recollection of that, he says. They ask him about dumping her on Peacock Drive. He carried her out of the house and put her in the passenger seat of his pickup, took her down the road, pulled over, got out, pulled her out, set her down on the ground. He doesn't seem to have picked that particular spot for any reason. He just wanted to get rid of the body, ASAP. They show him a photo of her as she was found. He says he remembers. He didn't recognize her face from the photo before, but he remembers now. The investigators tell him the big scrape on the inside of her forearm looks like he ran her over or dragged her. He says he did not run her over. He denies ever dragging her. Maybe it happened in the struggle, he says. For some reason, he's not willing to talk about that part. They ask if he found any of Tanya's things after he dumped her. He doesn't recall what he did with her purse and shoes at all. They tell him it seems he threw them out the window. He says that's entirely possible. He just has no recollection of doing that. They ask how long he stayed at his buddy John's on Elmcrest. A few months, he said. Any chance John had a pet? Um, yeah, he had a big black lab. Bingo. Remember that dark animal hairs were found all over Tanya, including in her mouth as well on the towel. This led detectives to ask the next logical question. How did the hairs get in her mouth? Did you use the towel to gag her, Dan? He says he used the towel to clean up after sex. Note that he now seems to remember the towel. Did she wake up and you shove the towel into her mouth before you strangled her? He says it could have happened that way, but he's not sure. The detectives tell Wells that in March 1985, someone called and tried to confess. This was the caller who phoned the local TV station and paper and claimed credit for three murders, including Tanya's. Was this him, they asked? No, he says. He never told a soul. He says he was freaking out for a long time. This kind of thing was not in his nature. Even back in school, he never hurt anyone, he says. Sometimes he wondered if it was a dream. He says it could have been the cocaine he was using during that time. The guy he rented the house from, John, turned him onto it. It's bad stuff, he says. It increased his sex drive and made him aggressive where he wasn't before. He cut that out and never found himself in that position again. It was a one-time thing. Is he sure, they say? Because two months later, there was the same type of case close to where he lives now, the one the phone caller tried to take credit for. 
They're hinting to see whether he flinches about Patricia's case. They tell him they're going to compare his DNA to Patricia's case evidence, so prepare yourself, Dan. They're fishing to see whether he fesses up to that one, too. They say he's going in the national database. He says, no, he didn't do that. The detectives can tell that they've reached a point with Wells where he needs a break. They leave the room, and he sits there alone, hands on knees. He drinks some water. He swishes it around in his mouth as if to relieve dry mouth. They leave him in there for a long time, a half hour. Then they come back in and ask how he's doing, and he says, not great. They say, well, that tells us something about you, implying that it means he has a conscience. He says, quietly, I shouldn't have done it. He does look like he's despondent or at least upset. He says she was hurt and I should have, he makes a gesture like, leave it. They can tell he is emotional. They start asking why the friends he had over that night, Bobby and Ralph, didn't report that Tanya was with him once the story of her murder hit the news the next day. He doesn't know the answer. He tells them the names of the guys he was with at the bar that night, Paul and Benji. They joined him and Tanya talking before he and Tanya left. He has no idea why no one said anything. No one does. The detectives allow Wells to make some phone calls. They give him back his phone. He leaves a message for his second wife, his son M's mom. He tells her to call M and tell him that he loves him. They let him call his sister. Her first name starts with N. We can only hear Wells' side of the conversation. He says, I did something 35 years ago. I committed a homicide. I'm going down to county to get booked, but I need you to come down here and get my truck and wallet. You can tell that Ann is asking questions on the other end of the line. He says, they have my DNA. They've been following me for some time. She goes on and he says, no, I already told them. I've accepted responsibility. I should have come clean a long time ago. I'm sorry. He says he wants his son, M to go to the house and get all the stuff at the house that's his. The detective tries to tell him he might get bond, and Wells is very realistic. He says, there'll be no bond. Back on the phone with his sister, he says, please get in touch with M. I'm probably never going to see him again. He says, I love you a couple of times. I don't have my will, but I've left everything to him. She says something, and he says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. It's the same thing as death. I would rather not even have life. I'm sorry. I love you. Bye. He's crying. He calls a guy he works with named Warren and says, I love you and the guys at work. I'm going to prison. I did something bad 35 years ago. I will say Wells does not seem as dead set as so many of the other killers we've seen on an unflinching course of deny, deny, deny. He seems to have very quickly resigned himself to admitting most of what he did and never getting out. The detectives take Wells's phone and leave the room, and an Escambia County cold case unit detective comes in and asks about the Patricia Stevens case. He shows Wells a photo, but Wells says he already saw it and he doesn't recognize her. He's giving nothing on that one. They leave him alone with the arrest warrant, and he reads all the details. Then he just sits, staring into space. Detectives Osley and Earhart come in and cuff Wells. They lead him out of the station to a waiting police vehicle. They put him in. His face has no expression. They got a search warrant for his saliva and fingerprints dated March 17th. It was executed on the 18th. They take a buckle swab and print him, taking finger and palm prints. He has to take off his sneakers and put on orange rubber prison slides. In his intake proceeding, Wells is told to take a seat, and he literally yawns. He looks bored as he answers questions about any diseases, illnesses, and allergies he has. 
Wells was charged with first-degree murder and first-degree sexual battery. A lab report from the FDLE dated April 3, 2020, regarding the buckle swabs taken from Wells upon his arrest state what we already know as to both the sperm fraction on the blue towel and the vaginal swabs. Quote, the observed foreign DNA profile is 700 billion times more likely to occur if the sample originated from Daniel Leonard Wells than from an unrelated individual. Tim Jr., Tanya's son, was, of course, by this time well into adulthood. Yet he had not been told of Tanya's murder for years. He said his whole young life, he was led to believe that his mother died in a car accident. Only when he accidentally stumbled on a case update in his father's papers did he learn the truth, that his mom was murdered and the police had no idea who had done it. Captain Mallett called Tim Jr. and told him of the arrest. They'd never met, Mallett said to Tim Jr. on the phone, but I want to let you know that I just made an arrest on your mother's murder. The captain is very emotional and can barely get the words out. Tim is like, I'm sorry, wait, what? Mallet gets a hold of himself and repeats, I just made an arrest. Hold on, OMFG, dude. Mallet says, he just confessed. Tim says, are you serious? He's bawling. I'm freaking out. Are you serious? Yes, says Mallet. Who is it? His name is Daniel Wells. He did not know your mom. Tim is crying. He keeps asking, is this legitimate? Is this for real? He says thank you so much multiple times, crying. The Pensacola PD issued a statement after the arrest of Daniel Wells. It reads, quote, Tanya loved life. She made the most of every day. She was always looking for ways to make her friends laugh. She never met a stranger, which is what made New Year's Day 1985 so terrible. You see, when the sun rose on the new year, Tanya McKinley's body was found discarded on the side of Creighton Road, 35 years ago. We collected evidence, interviewed her friends, family, and anyone who might have come across her the night before while she was celebrating at Daryl's restaurant behind University Mall. Despite having a good bit of physical evidence and dozens of interviews, over time, the trail went cold. It seems that every couple of years, a new lead would pop up and we would drop everything to run it down. We did this time and time again. In the meantime, a baby boy grew up without a mother Parents buried their daughter without knowing justice, and a killer was walking around free for 35 years. When detectives retired, Tanya's case was passed along to the next generation again and again. As technology advanced, the case was brought back to the forefront. Detectives laid fresh eyes on all of the evidence, new theories were presented, and hopes of catching Tanya's killer were renewed. Each time, evil won, just out of reach, for 35 years. Today, the evil that took Tanya from her friends and family was arrested for her brutal murder. The reasons why this happened, how evil crossed Tanya's path, may never be answered and in the end may not be important. What is important is that no one forgot Tanya for 35 years. Her family did not forget. Her friends did not forget. Her son did not forget. And the Pensacola Police Department did not forget. You may now rest in peace, Tanya Etheridge McKinley. End quote. I didn't really know if this arrest would ever happen, Renee told NBC News. I didn't really think this would happen in my lifetime, not after 35 years. Renee told the Pensacola News Journal about the arrest, quote, Tanya can rest now. She can finally rest. 
After he had some time to process the news, Tim Jr. told the Daily Beast that he was happy at the news of the arrest, but would only feel, quote, complete when there is a conviction and justice has been served. It's still kind of unbelievable, like I'm dreaming, he added. He told the Pensacola News Journal, quote, My mom never got to raise me, never got to be a part of my life. He just got to live his life for the last 35 years. He got to have a family. He got to be around his child. And all those years, he was out there knowing what he did. He was carrying it around with him, and he was never going to tell anyone what he did. He wasn't going to ever just say what he did on his own. Nothing could ever make up for losing my mom, but at least now we know what happened to her, end quote. Wells pleaded not guilty to the felony charges against him in a court appearance on March 23rd. He was scheduled for an arraignment on April 8th. He did not appear. At 4.27 a.m. on April 2nd, inmates at the Escambia County Jail started banging on the bars and shouting for the attention of the officers on duty. Someone was hanging in his cell, they yelled. Officer Seth Powell entered Blue Number 2 pod and observed Daniel Wells hanging from a torn bedsheet. He was wearing just a pair of red undershorts. Blood was coming from his nose and his eyes were just slits. Powell checked for a pulse, and when he found there was none, he cut Wells down and started performing chest compressions on the floor. The jail's medical staff arrived at approximately 4.29 a.m. and commenced CPR, but Wells was unresponsive. EMT Taylor pronounced time of death at approximately 4.40 hours. Wells was left in place so the crime scene could be documented for the custodial death report. Crime scene tech Jennifer Hall processed the scene. Investigator Alvarez handled the investigation for the medical examiner. The death report indicates that Wells was last seen at approximately 4 a.m. when he was served breakfast. He did not eat it. I saw photos of the styrofoam container sitting on the mattress-free top bunk. It contained an unappetizing pile of grits and pancakes. Then, 27 minutes later, Wells was found hanging in the bottom bunk, which was unoccupied, by the torn and looped bedsheet. The sheet had blood on it, and Wells had petechiae on the eyelids and a very pronounced ligature mark around his throat. They laid him on his back on the floor as they tried to perform CPR, which was unsuccessful. After they were done, photos showed how the blood had pooled in the posterior area of his body, so that when pressed with fingertips, stark white marks appeared. Video surveillance footage was reviewed and verified that no one had gone into or come out of Wells's cell since breakfast. And this from the report by Officer Alvarez, quote, Additionally, I was informed by Lieutenant Champion that patrol officers assigned to Wells's cell block had missed their checks, end quote. There are no photos of Wells actually hanging because Officer Powell sprang into action to cut him down to try to save his life. But I do have to wonder why Wells waited until after breakfast to hang himself versus doing it in the middle of the night. Then he might go unnoticed for a longer period of time. Presumably, there was no way that he could have known that the officers would miss their checks of his cell block. He could have been found within minutes, but he wasn't. From the evidence photos, I was able to figure out how Wells hung himself without any hooks or bars in the cell. He attached the torn bedsheet, fashioned in a loop, to the short metal arm which suspended the top bunk platform. It extended down into the lower bunk. Then he must have knelt on the bottom bunk and leaned forward into the noose until he asphyxiated. It took a lot of willpower. The photos of Wells's body are hard to look at. 
His neck and face are bloated and stained a violent shade of purple. Dried blood has streaked out of his nose and poured down onto his long beard stubble at the jawline and trickled all the way down onto his throat on one side. Also, I didn't know this was a thing, but photos of Wells's body showing his mouth pulled open indicate that the gums turned stark white when deprived of oxygen. As part of the death investigation, Wells's jail phone calls to his sister in the days before his death were reviewed and, quote, indicated that Wells was depressed over the conditions of the jail to include the phone call system, the noise, and the lack of commissary. I was surprised to hear that the items he complained about did not include the actual cell, which is absolutely tiny and contains simply a stark stainless steel seatless toilet, a sink, and two very small, very hard metal shelves protruding from the wall that serve as bunks. Back to the report, quote, Wells had made open statements to her about not to worry about him because he was going to be free, end quote. The medical examiner's office report concluded that the cause of death was hanging. The manner of death was suicide. The case is considered closed, cleared as a suicidal death. Two weeks after his arrest, Daniel Wells was dead, and the Tanya McKinley case came to a screeching halt. Okay, so what else did Daniel Wells do? As I discussed in the interview section, he wasn't entirely honest with his interrogators, Mallet and Harnett, when they asked him about the other stuff he'd done before they got into Tanya's case. In 1987, he was arrested by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office for battery, tampering with a witness, and resisting a law enforcement officer without violence. The records have been purged, so we don't know what this incident involved. But according to the Pensacola News Journal, Wells pleaded no contest to the battery charges. In 1988, he was arrested for soliciting prostitution, again by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office. These records have been purged as well, but Wells admitted to getting probation and counseling for this charge. On April 29, 1990, the Independence, Missouri Police Department arrested Wells for indecent exposure. In his white truck, Wells approached a female victim and asked for directions. When the victim approached the vehicle, she noticed Wells had his pants down and was stimulating his penis. The victim quickly walked away while Wells asked her if she wanted a ride. In his interview with Mallet and Harnett, Wells said he didn't know why he did it. He was drinking at the time. He said, I guess it gave me a thrill to expose myself, as sick as that is. The Excelsior Springs, Missouri Police Department took five reports on Wells from May 18, 1998 to October 27th of that year. All of these incidents involved the same type of behavior. In the first incident, the victim was jogging. Wells waved her over to his blue truck, asking for directions. The victim noticed Wells had his penis exposed and was stroking himself, and she took off running. Wells approached the victim for a second time and made a lewd gesture by cupping his hands under his chest. The victim yelled at Wells to leave her alone, and he did. The next day, a different female victim reported she was followed by Wells from the Hardy's drive-thru to her residence. Wells stopped in the middle of the cul-de-sac and told the victim he thought he went to high school with her, which was absurd because he went to high school in Milton, Florida, and he didn't mean to scare her. The victim stated she was scared and walked to her neighbor's house. Wells drove away. A few months later, a female jogger reported that a blue truck driven by Wells approached her and asked for directions. Once the victim approached the truck, she could see Wells had his penis exposed and was stroking himself. She walked away, and he did not follow her. 
Next, a female victim was in the downtown area of Liberty when Wells, driving a blue truck, approached her and a friend asking for directions. The victim stated the suspect drove off and reappeared several times, claiming he could not find the address. After a third time of being contacted, he drove away making an obscene gesture. The victim interpreted the gesture to be a sign of masturbation. She did not see his genitalia. Finally, a female victim stated while walking she was approached by Wells in a blue truck asking for directions. The victim gave him directions. He drove around the block and came back. The victim again approached his vehicle and saw that he had his pants unzipped and was masturbating. Wells was eventually charged with indecent exposure for some of these incidents, but is believed to be responsible for all of them. After Wells' arrest in Tanya's case, authorities in Pensacola recommended that law enforcement in Missouri, where Wells lived for 20 years, should review unsolved cases during that time frame and consider whether Wells could be a suspect. Because unfortunately, Daniel Wells won't be confessing to any more crimes. So that is the sad case of Tanya McKinley and the sordid tale of her killer, Daniel Wells. In the end, Wells chose not to stick around to see whether he would be convicted. As he told the detectives, he was aware what the DNA meant. According to the Pensacola News Journal, the arrest of Daniel Wells resolved the oldest cold case in Pensacola history. But I don't know whether Tanya's family would agree that it is resolved. After Wells' suicide, her son Tim Jr. called Wells a coward for taking the easy way out instead of sitting through the trial. He told Law and Crime, quote, it's frustrating for our family on a lot of levels because we waited so long to get justice. Now, it seems like we just have a lot more unanswered questions. After 35 years, Tanya McKinley's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. I have to thank several people for talking to me about this case. Lori Napolitano, formerly of the FDLE, retired Pensacola Police Sergeant Dan Harnett, and Lee Clark of the FDLE. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at dnaidpodcast on Instagram, at dnaidpodcast on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash dnaidpodcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.